Welcome. I'm Victoria Schneps, publisher of Schneps Media, and today interviewing our healthcare hero, Ed Matthews, somebody I've known for almost 50 years, who has stood the test of time providing quality services for special people. So, Ed, welcome. I'm so delighted to talk with you. Thank you very much, Vicki. It's an honor to be here and an honor well, to be right. It's been quite a journey, and I know that as CEO of ADAPT, which once was called UCP, United Cerebral Palsy of New York City, you've adapted, and you've made changes as they are. But let's go back in years, and I, I would love to hear about, you know, where you are CEO for so many years. How many years are you now the CEO? I just celebrated my 34th anniversary. Wow. All right. So you have made the test of survival possible and creating an opportunity for so many people. But, you know, it all starts that kind of leadership bug. Where did it start with you? Who was the inspiration in your life that you feel kind of set your tone for who you wanted to be in this world or who you have become? Well, I credit my parents for that, to be truthful with you. Uh, you know, they were both very active in their local community. My dad was very active in local politics in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. And my mom was very active in 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 the in the church, you know, in terms of her volunteer work. So I always thought service was going to be always part of the DNA of what I ever did. And quite candidly, you know, I, I I've said to people sometimes, uh, you you go to college, you go to graduate school, you have a very good idea of what your career is. You can you find your career, and sometimes your career finds you. And I had started out as a school psychologist, actually, in the New York City DOE. And in the 1970s, it just, I didn't think I could make a difference there. It was, that was going to be my life. But I worked in the mental health world. I had a job at St. Vincent's Hospital, now defunct St. Vincent's Hospital for a few years. But that was going to be what, what I, like, child psychology was going to be my calling. But when I got there, I, I found, you know, I don't know how much things have changed, but it was, certainly was not a, a, a an atmosphere conducive to both kids and education. So I actually called a friend of mine I had gone to school with at AHRC and he told me that, well, come on over there. We have nobody, nobody knows anything. And so we could use a, somebody who knows something about psychology. I said, <laughs> I, I said at the time, and of course the term was retarded people. I said, I didn't know anything about retarded people. He said, neither does anyone else. And so, uh, that was in 1974, and here I am. I got over there, I worked there for a couple of years, and then, when, as you know, I went to state government for almost 10 and 34 years here. Um, it's been it's been an absolute pleasurable ride, that's for sure. But I sort of fell in by accident, but I made it a calling. So, you know, with working for the state and now working for a nonprofit, what was the difference? What was it... Uh... You know, was it a frustrating thing with working in state government when you had a vision? Back then, as you remember, as you remember, when they had a court order back then, Vicky, so that, you know, if you had a if you had a good idea, you could implement it because there were there were things that they needed to do and they needed to produce community based programs for a whole host of people. And then kids and adults living in the community sort of got swept up with that. And so they got more services, too. And. It was this ever concentric circle is that people needed someplace to live. So then they needed to create day programs for something to do. And since the institution was closed, they had to spend more money on the special education in the education department. So the people didn't had something 
had some education and things that, you know, that they weren't going to be institutionalized. So it created a whole network of services that uh, still stands the test of time today. And of course, things have changed and, you know, government changes over time. And certainly when the consent judgment ended and uh, that was the end of that, it's not as easy now to access dollars and, and, uh, and, and certainly innovation as it was back then, but certainly there are still opportunities there for organizations that do things well. And I, I, I like to think we're one of them. So when you joined United Cerebral Palsy, now ADAPT, because obviously many of the people being born today do not have that problem, but they have many other special needs. So ADAPT has been a great name for you. Tell me about the journey now today, what you're doing and what you're seeing in terms of programming and what the agency adapts doing with their services for people in the community. You know, as you know, the, the thing you have to do most and always is listen to the families and what they're looking for and what they want out of that. And as I, as I said earlier, that when we started out, you know, everybody wanted to live in a group home and it was sort of a rite of passage. But, you know, more and more younger families now are looking for different types of opportunities for their child with a, de- with a developmental disability. They want some independence. They want, they want them to join society. They want to live with everybody else, work with everybody else, have relationships. Uh, with everybody else and be just part of society rather than just a well-supported different part of society. So I think that uh, our our role here is to really to create those opportunities for people to find their journey and rather than us being the experts about what that journey should look like. And I think that, you know, where we're more, when we're more, not it's not a passive role at all, it's a very active role, but I think the mindset of how we approach it has changed dramatically over the 34 years that I've been here. And now we have to be sure that as we as we create new things, as we as we create new opportunities, things like self-direction. Well, the first governor's Medicaid redesign team that took place in 2011, I was fortunate to be part of, there were 700 families in the state participating in self-direction. Now there are almost 20,000. And so, you know, this is where families are deciding their own course of action, spending their own budgets, hiring the staff, and uh, and creating the opportunities for their loved one with their own circle of support. So these are the kinds of things I think that we really have to pay attention to and really start to create those types of opportunities. People don't want to go out in groups anymore. They want to go out and have their own experiences, whether they, whether some of them are for work, some of them are just, you know, the art programs now over the last several years have flourished. And people's creativity has come to do, has come to rise, and society started to take note of this. We've had art shows, and many agencies do. It's not just us, obviously, but you know, we've had art shows and theater programs and all kinds of things that we never thought about fifty years ago. So, when you see that kind of changing pattern, I've always felt that a family tends to be so overwhelmed when they have a child that is special that then to have the burden of also having to search for your own services. Now they've developed brokers. I mean, it's a very complicated thing to be, it sounds good, you're self-directed, but, you know, have you seen complications and ways that it could be eased out? People have their own journey, as I said. So many people don't want to do that, you know, especially in urban areas. I mean, everybody's having their own hard enough time managing their, their own their own living situation, their own job. Most families are are, are you know, if, if there are an intact family, you know, they're, they're uh, dual working households. And so it's not that everybody has that kind of time. You're absolutely correct about that. So for those people, you know, we have different types of supports and, you know, offer them the things that they can make some choices, but they, 
the burden of making all the choices and directing their own loved one's life and the service delivery system is not for them. And I think in urban areas, that has a tendency to be more the case than not the case. But as I said, there are now over 20, almost 20,000 people directing these types of services. And we're finding more and more that younger parents, uh, as their child comes out of school, want that responsibility, especially as long as there's an intact family. And, you know, there are other complications with it, obviously, when it's not. But uh, so we, you know, we have to have those kinds of service options meet everyone's needs to have something that everyone can relate to, whether not just those, not just self-direction, but the types of services and still, you know, we, we still struggle with transportation. I mean, it's a, you know, it's always been a bugaboo is how you get people from one spot to another. And that's the one thing that hasn't changed much over the years. So there are still struggles with getting transportation now, particularly coming out of the pandemic, where, uh, where folks are having difficulty, even the bus companies and the private transportation carriers are having trouble hiring drivers and staff and matrons to be able to get people back and forth. So we still struggle with a lot of the day-to-day -day problems that the pandemic has caused, that's for sure. So in terms of long-term care, because, you know, people age out of programs when they are, you know, in school, and then now what do they do when their family may have a single parent or an aging parent for group homes? So how are you seeing the group homes developing now? I, I think they'll, you know, as you know, 50 years ago, everybody was young and now we're not so young. But the so there is a certain amount of attrition. And unfortunately, you know, life expectancies are much longer now, but people are living longer. But still, there's a certain amount of vacancies when we're nowhere near homeostasis. But the idea that the, that's the other part of it, uh, we have to be part of the mainstream supported housing programs that are that are so prevalent now in the city for whether it's low-income housing, supported housing, where there are services there. Those are the types of things I think with agencies like ours have to really become much more adroit at in, in accessing those types of service deliveries where people can live in the community with other people and still get individualized supports when they need them. Well, that's an interesting piece of the pie that didn't exist before. You know, right. this integrative housing and being able to part of this affordable housing building and advocating for that, because that certainly is something that's critically uh, important because, you know, uh, people need to have housing ultimately. And that's really where uh, planning now for the future. Are you seeing that um, the kinds of is there a particular program you run so many that you're particularly proud of? I think lately, the thing that comes to mind that we're most proud of is we developed, you know, as people were unable to come, programs closed, at least the sites closed. And we developed a very robust remote programming activity where every day people got to choose almost like a college, not almost like exactly like a college curriculum, the kinds of things they wanted to be involved with from educational classes to cooking classes, to language arts, to art programs that they could access right from their own home. And we, we got, we were able to get, uh, whether it's Chromebooks or laptops, every person in our day program uh, and made sure that if they could not manually use them themselves, that we got staff there or make sure we trained a family member or a friend or somebody that could help them with it so that we could get everybody still communicating with each other, connected with each other during the, during the pandemic. And we will continue to do that even now that the public health emergency is over as of May 11th and therefore the Medicaid portion ends on November 11th. 
we will still, while we're bringing people together in centers, it'll still look more like a college curriculum than it ever did before, where I think people were sort of doing these sort of individualized classroom activities. Now we're opening that up to a far more, a far greater uh, group of people. In fact, we, you know, we now work with some of the agencies with people who have are hearing impaired and other things who help us, who participate with us on some of the classes. So it's been a lot of fun. People are making different relationships than they did before. So I think, I think that's the, probably over the last several years that's the thing we're most proud of. Wonderful. Well, I think it's you know. I mean, I think the big goal is to keep people in their homes for as long as you can. And that's a creative way. I think, you know, we all feel that the pandemic was a horror, but some good things came out of it, like telemedicine and this acceptance. Yeah, uh, again, we learned more about ourselves and the world than we do before, than we had to do before. And I think for some of us who've been very innovative, and we're certainly not the only agency, but so, but some of us who've been innovative and and uh, able to pe- keep people connected have been uh, it's been a lifeline for for any number of folks, and there's only been a few folks that we just haven't seen, and you know, so we we were able to reach everyone. And I would say, uh, if, if it all ended tomorrow, that would be one of the greatest accomplishments I've had. Well, that's a great thing, but you know, I think you have a lot of success stories along these uh, almost mm-hmm. 50 years of involvement with children with special needs and adults. So, c- tell me some secrets to success. Tell me what you could share with people that could help them be on this road of success? And I started out saying before, never be satisfied. You know, I tell people here, when we do our pre-service orientation to people, I tell people three things are key to success. Work hard, have fun, make a difference. And if you can keep those things in mind, everything that you do should, can fall under those categories. The job should be interesting. You should, have a, you should enjoy doing it. If you don't enjoy doing it, don't do it anymore. But, you know, that doesn't mean every day is fun. What it means is that the overall experience is a positive one and something that you get something out of and you, get, you give something out of. And making a difference, that's where all of the innovation comes in. You have to be able to make a difference for people. And working hard, everybody can do that. But you have to be able to, you have to, be able to work hard. You have to have fun. And you have to, you have to make it fun. If, if the staff see that the boss is there working hard and having fun doing it, that's infectious for people. And I think, you know, if I just tell people, make a difference. Try to come every day and do something that makes a difference. Whether you're a DSP, whether you work in the accounting office, whether you do, make a difference. Know that you're there, be important, be necessary. And if you can, if you can do that, no matter what job you're in, you'll get a lot of satisfaction out of it and give a lot to it. And no matter what, it, it's not a secret. I, you know, I, I don't think there are any secrets to success here. Uh, I think, I think you have to know what you're doing. You have to have good people around you. You can't do this all by yourself. I mean, you have to, but, but those people have to bring that ethic to the job, whether they be your CFO or anything else, because culture in an organization like this is extremely important. And so you have to have people who also want to work hard, have fun and make a difference. I think that's a great mantra. I like that. We're going to write that down and put it up on a sign because if you don't have it on a sign, you should. We do. <laughs> there you go. Well, I love talking with Ed Matthews, an old friend who has made a difference and has worked hard and has certainly proven to have a great impact on our society and our communities that we serve. So, Ed, CEO of ADAPT, thank you for being with us. This is Victoria Schnepp saying goodbye till next time. Bye.